This is episode 46 of Pennies in the Well, and I welcome you to it, though I cannot say merry meet tonight, for tonight, tonight I grieve, as I have grieved last night, as I have avoided grieving for months, as grief should be my companion that I can let through, pass through travel through my life, and move on. Some months ago, at our Pagan Pride in Vancouver, so in August, I acquired a new tarot deck. Now, as somebody who has had a bit of a tarot addiction, and at one point in my life had more than 50 tarot decks, one of which is tarot dice, and truly truly remarkable. Tarot dice is a special thing that's uh, in its own way exceedingly horrendous and all the more blissful because of that horrendousness. Uh, I have released many decks in the past couple of years to other people who would find better use for them to not own and keep simply because I could, because there was some pretty, because there was something, because it was tarot and for no better reason than a pretty picture and a tarot deck. I released them and leaving me still with about 30 decks to be honest, but some number of those are from my past and hold meaning from that and some from my present and some potentially from my future when I need something else to hold. And I never thought I would buy another tarot deck because come on, 30 decks is a bit excessive for uh, anyone when it comes to practical usage, when really you only need one, um, you know, even, or, or three, if you really want to stretch it, but there does come a point when you just don't need more decks. So what did I do at our Vancouver Pagan Pride? I bought another tarot deck, the, uh, tarot in Wonderland deck, which given my appreciation and engagement with the myth of Alice in Wonderland, it was very apropos and I bought it. Well, actually, I said, hey, uh, Goldie, who runs Phoenix Rising Metaphysical Emporium, hey, why the hell not give her a plug? She is an awesome businesswoman, and her and Jens run this great store in Langley, BC, and uh, with an amazing eye for product. Anyhow, so I, I visit their stall. It was actually Jens who was at it. And there's this tarot, one tarot of Wonderland. And I can't resist just because of the Wonderland reference. And I pick it up and I don't put it down. And hey, Jens, do you mind if I just kind of keep this with me for a bit? And he's like, yeah, no problem. He probably knew the writing. He's known me for years and years. He he knew what was coming, but it takes me a while sometimes to uh, accept my fate. A much bigger statement when I come to think of it. Anyhow, so I wandered around for, I don't know, a good hour or longer holding this tarot deck that uh, I would show people, but not really let loose from my hands before I finally went, okay, fine, I'm going to buy this. And I, I did buy it and I open it and I look at the cards and I'm like, hmm, the artwork, it, it didn't cry out. It, it was not a artwork that called to me and said, oh, I am so gloriously pretty. Don't you want to have me here? Please, please take me. That sounded kind of sexual, which is not how I meant it. <laughs> and I had this tarot deck. And I'm like, okay. You know, I felt a, a strong impulse towards getting it. Now that I have it, do I really, you know, want it? Is it, is it something I need? Did I do the right choice? It's been that kind of year, half decade, whatever. 
So I have this tarot deck and I get home and over a couple of weeks, I'm looking a little closer. I'm starting to work with the deck and going, oh, oh okay. Yeah, there's something here. There, there's definitely something for me to connect with. Then I'm reading the back of the book. And you know, every tarot, every tarot deck that comes with a full out book, as opposed to the little booklet inside of a little box, anyone that's got a full out booklet is bound to have some number of tarot spreads in the back, you know, some standard, your Celtic cross, your three card spread, probably a five card spread, really rendered, uh, standard stuff. And then they'll have their own individual ones, something specific for that deck, something unique. And I'm doing, uh, looking at the spreads for this deck. And I'd already had the thought of, you know, Wonderland, how would the experiences of Wonderland translate into a spread? And there's actually a couple of them, quite honestly, that are fucking brilliant. Uh, embracing the, the choices and the uncertainty of, of real life in a sense, where there's multiple choices coming up and which one are you going to choose? So there's this one particular spread and I don't remember the entirety of it. And so I'm not going to rob the book of its power and its worth by telling you the entirety of how it worked, but I can tell you at least some of the framework. And, you know, you started from a core place, uh, a core situation, and then contemplate like what what are the various and assorted it's a okay I'm here and there's all these options ahead of me like I could do this I could do that I could do this other thing which way should I go it's that kind of situation that kind of question so uh, that was something I really appreciated was this variety of styles of questions you could approach and I was in a pretty rough place not news for how my last couple of years have been. And I laid out, God, probably at least, I don't know, 15 to 20 different options. Like, like, where should I focus right now? What would serve me? Where's going to take me where I want to go? Do I even know where I want to go? That's a whole different question, but you get the idea. So I, I take little pieces of post-its and I trim off the sticky side of the post-it. So I'm just left with these little uh, rectangles of paper and I write on them various outcomes, various options. You know, should I be dancing? Should I be doing rituals? Should I be doing this, that, and the other thing? And I had all these options and from the center point, you laid out um, something like three cards and then an outcome card. And the outcome card was face up. And with the outcome card was one of these options of outcomes that I had written out of what I wanted, but the outcomes were face down and they were mixed up. So I didn't know which outcome um, or which option was with each outcome card, if that makes sense. So I could see what the result would be, you know, do you want to go for travel a road that takes you to the high priestess in tarot? Do you want to travel a road that takes you to the 10 of cups? Do you want to travel a road that takes you to the wheel of fortune? Do you want to travel a road that takes you to the six of wands? What do you want? What do you, what do you like look at and go, yeah, yeah, that's it. That's, that's where I want to go to right now. Say so you remove the other ones. You, you pick that path based upon the outcome of tarot card that you see and you take away all the other paths and you don't look at them. You just put the cards away and you put the little slips of paper away. They've done their job. You didn't select them. They don't matter. Doesn't matter about the road you didn't take. Matters about the road you take. So I take this road and I take whichever card it was for the outcome and I don't remember if it was, you know, look at the outcome and then look at the three cards that led to it. Because the three cards from where you are now to that outcome are, of course, guideposts, suggestions, um, things to consider to help you travel along that road. What I do remember is that when I flipped over the activity piece of paper, that it said, grieve. So to take myself to the outcome tarot that spoke most to my heart and to my soul that said, yeah, 
yeah, that's where I want to be. That's, that's the feeling better I want to have. The road, the thing I needed to do, the activity I needed to embrace was to grieve. Well, intellectually, okay, I don't like it, but I get it, okay. The rest of me, uh, I am an exceedingly stubborn person. And when I don't want to deal with something, I don't want to deal with that thing. And I can do amazing gymnastics internally in order to avoid that thing. Truly, you know, if and when I ever master the ability to avoid well, master the ability of avoiding and procrastination, uh, I will be able to guide anyone through it because I am a true master in the avoidance and in the procrastination. So I got it, I heard it, but I, I couldn't embrace it. I could not face the idea of grief. Why? In part because my grief has reached a place, a pinnacle, an epicness that... I cannot face without thinking, believing, without believing that I will crumble, crack, smash, die in the face of that grief. That there has been too much in the last seven years. That there has been echoes into old grief that was never dealt with. That there was just so much waiting, like a, a tidal wave that was ready to engulf me. And to face that grief is to be engulfed and to die. So I, I did not touch it. This is despite the fact that for the last couple of years prior, well, the years prior to this year, I had done actually a fair amount of work in acquiring skills to be able to face something like this. On one hand, on the spiritual side, I added shamanic training to my repertoire. Um, So I have the basics in shamanic training. And truly, if you you want to get down the healing path with people on a spiritual level, you want shamanic training. That that is, they are primed for that. And that's what I was there for, was to learn shamanic healing. And I'd also done some neuroplasticity work. So very much on the side of somatic experiencing and Feldenkrais work and getting into the body and using the body to, to help heal that, that we, we live in a physical body. We are not separate from it the body's experiences and our soul's experiences and our spiritual experiences and our heart's experiences and our psyche's experiences, all of these experiences and our will's experiences, they're all tied up in the same bundle. And all of them are expressed in the now through our somatic experience that is our body. So if we want to deal with anything of the emotions or of the psyche, we're, we're going to have to deal with the somatic part, the living body part. They're utterly entwined. Anyway, so I have done all this training and yet here I am and I look at this word grief and, and I can't. And all these tools that I have had before me doesn't matter. I can't take them in. I can't use them. I can't. Then I have a soul retrieval then I get sick, sick again, sick a third time. Then I re-injure my back in a way that uh, relates to the soul retrieval. And I spend two months uh, in recovery and a lot of time not sleeping in my bed, but lying flat on my bed because it turns out my couch has a bit of an angle and it sort of doesn't help. And so the only place I could really lie down was in my bed, which has this nice, beautiful drapery of fabric along one side. TV at the end. Uh, It's a very enclosed space and it's, it's sacred in its own way. I have, um, the the shape wise, they're worry stones. So little oval flat ovals that are element, elementally charged. And they, uh, I tuck them in under my sheets in the corner of the bed. So I actually have a little protective circle all the time. And I have a, 
a different triangle of protection around the bed and I have these giant roses at the foot and it's Mad Hatter hat and it's, it's whimsical and magical and protective and strong and all of these things and restful. The same time, it's like sleeping in a goddamn coffin. I've been saying to people, I, I've just been resting in my coffin. And through all of this time, I couldn't face the idea of grieving too much. Couldn't do it. Even as I'm lying there going, wow, universe and my subconscious have utterly conspired, utterly conspired to bring me here to this moment where I'm lying in this coffin-like place with nowhere else I'm going to go because I can't physically go anywhere else without hurting myself. And I still can't go into my grief. It's too much. And why? Why is it too much? Why is grief so goddamn hard? But we're not taught how to handle grief. I come from a North American, vaguely Christian, and I say that because I didn't grow up Christian. I grew up in a Christian culture. You know, it's imbued into the culture, but I did not grow up in a Christian faith because uh, my family just didn't do the religious things. So we were very secular Christian, I guess, in a sense. And my culture doesn't do death, doesn't do endings. You know, if somebody dies, you have a funeral, but there's no how you handle the grieving. Like even the funeral is just a, they're dead, there's a funeral and you're done. You know, you look at also other cultures and, you know, I don't know a lot about them and their death rituals, but I knew that, know that there are death rituals where on uh, some you hang cloth over the mirrors and there's uh, a co-worker of mine um, there was a death in her family recently and they spend something like a week in grieving rituals and rituals around the dead and there's time spent actual time spent, not just a, okay, we've done our due diligence. We've got them into an urn or into the ground and we've had the obligatory people have come together and if words have been said and we're done and it's done. It's too short. North American standard grieving is too short, too shallow, and it doesn't touch into the reality of pain. And so, of course, you get people who have suffered great loss and it's a decade later and they, they still have great loss inside of them because we don't know how to process. We don't know how to actually do the act of grieving, to, to feel it. So part of grieving, the part of processing any emotion when it comes right down to it, to process any emotion, we actually have to feel it. We have to be with it. We have to let it run its course. Emotions, most people say that they're like water. Um, but I would argue instead, I'm going to put this before you, that our emotions are more like air than like water. Water, when it comes down to it, is pretty consistent. It travels, it flows, it can pool, it can stagnate. Um, that's how we think of emotion. It's like water, that it can do those things. And it, it's pretty darn persistent when you have water. Water is there unless it evaporates into the air, but mostly it's there and it pools and it may travel a bit and it can do great, huge uh, rushing damage if you've got like your big kind of tsunami or um, raging rivers, that kind of thing. But I suggest to you that this idea that our emotions are water is a dangerous fallacy that comes from not dealing with our emotions, but instead ending up in a place where we aren't dealing with our emotions until they're so loud and so condensed that they have shifted from, from a gas to a liquid. If you remember your high school or earlier chemistry, don't know when this is taught anymore, 
um, we have gas, we have liquid, we have solid. Um, I suggest to you that to see emotions as water is to see emotions when they have been condensed, squished, um, made still and, and, and solidified in a sense, uh, They've been removed from their state of grace, of free-flowingness into a state of liquid. So let me switch slightly. I suggest to you that our emotions are best considered like air. Air is all around us all the time. But when I'm here now in my apartment and most of the windows are closed because it's November right now for another few days. And it's cold outside. And uh, in my current state of the world and for several years now, I've tended to run to the cold. And I like my place to be warm because I like to be cozy and to wander around in bare feet. So I have only one window open a bit. Which means I do not have a lot of, you know, massive airflow going on in here. I mean, there's still airflow. It's not like it's completely musky and icky in here. we got to have fresh air. But it's not winds blowing through, right? It's pretty still. Like the inside of most homes, the air is pretty, you know, apparently still from our perspective. It isn't actually still. There's, there's faint shiftings and I can look over and I see uh, this wand. Huh. As I say this, I'm like, oh yeah, this wand that uh, a dear friend of mine made after her brother was randomly murdered. Um, He was shot and killed on her birthday. Life is sometimes beyond tragic. Um, And in her grief, she made this wand and it's this expression of where she was. And she doesn't consider herself very um, creative. And I look at this with its rabbit fur in the middle and crystals all over and feathers hanging at the end. And she was selling it at, I think it was at the Gathering for Life, uh, which, by the way, is a really great conference. Happens in May here, um, just in the lower mainland of British Columbia. Um, Truly amazing thing. I'll talk about it a different day. Gatheringforlife.org. Check it out. Anyhow. She was selling this wand and part of me was just so distraught for her that this expression and manifestation of her grief would be something that she'd simply just sell. Just just like that, just sell. Make it make it go away in a sense. So I bought it. <laughs> not in, you know, Hey, always happy to support a, a friend who's an entrepreneur, always want to buy local, always good with that, supporting the people who make crafts. But this went beyond that. This was a, no, this can't just go out into the world and into some random hands. This is a sacred object created in a state that needs to be honored. So it came home with me. And it rests on a, um, sorry if there's a little background noise. Sometimes my computer starts to make humming noises and then it travels into the podcast and we are where we are today and we're going to get what we get. And at some point, probably in about a minute, you're going to hear a little background noise because I'm trying to encourage myself to go to bed on time and it's going to go, Hey, you were supposed to go to bed. So, uh, if my choices are record the podcast, um, and get a little background noise occasionally into it or not do the podcast, I'm choosing the former. So this wand that she had made is resting on a set of deer horns. My dad went hunting only once in his life where he actually shot, killed a deer. And this is the set of horns from that animal. And they rest on my wall. Hail Hearn. And the wand rests on it. And from the end of the wand dangles a couple of feathers And they move ever so slightly in the air currents coming up from the heater and tells me that the air in this place is in motion. The air is in motion. It's invisible to the eye. The movement is subtle, 
to me, for most of when I'm in here, I don't notice the currents, but they're there. If I was to go outside, you know, I would probably feel a little brush of the faintest wind. And you know that it travels up, right? The wind can be just a little tickle on the skin. It can shift your hair. It can move your clothes or it can blow up into, oh, good Lord, you're battening down the hatches and you're bringing in the breakables from the balcony because this wind could just take things and fly them off into who knows where. Winds travel an entire range of impact from apparent stillness through to the gales and the hurricanes. I suggest to you that emotions are more like air. That a lot of the time our emotions are relatively quiet, not overly noticeable, if we're in a healthy relationship with our emotions. And that when there is something that comes up, it comes up. The emotion stirs up like a wind. It comes up, it does its thing, and then it passes. This is the way emotions are meant to be. They're meant to, to happen in the now because they do, because there's something that causes them to spark into being and they go through their experience and then they die down. They fade away. They're not meant to be a lingering lake or sea or even a river that's in constant motion that never lets up. Emotions are not water, they are air. They are transient. They are an experience that comes in, leaves an impact, and then goes. Except that we really suck at actually feeling our emotions. It is a North American, uh, I don't know, illness, disease. It's a disease that we have, a disease of of expectation, judgment, thought, pattern. I, I don't know the source of it. I do know that, that our view, our experience, our practice, our habit of our emotions is not healthy. Instead of getting angry and feeling that anger and going, yeah, there's a reason I have the anger and the reason may be correct and it's justified or it may be wrong and it's unjustified, but I have anger and it's a real thing and I feel it and here's the source of it and we're done. And then, then it's felt. It's felt, it expressed, and, it's, and it goes. It goes. Did you know that if you allow an emotion to actually be felt, experienced, accepted by you, that it will pass? I know it's a crazy thought, but it's still true. Emotions aren't meant to be in all the time. We can't be always happy. We can't be always sad or angry or disgusted or surprised. This is, this is not how our emotions are supposed to be. And yet they are how they are. And that's a bit of a divide, right? Between where we are and ideally where we would healthily be. Because we don't sit, especially with negative emotions, we overindulge in our easy emotions and we under-experience what we would consider negative emotions. And we could, we could get into the whole classification of emotions. You know, is there five? Is there seven? They break down or combine into all these other emotions. So I generally work with the five of... Um, happy, sad, angry, disgusted, and surprised. I feel like disgusted sometimes I switch out with something else. And it honestly doesn't matter right in this moment. And that's been identified as the five basic emotions in a number of different circumstances. Um, oh, fear. Actually, I would probably substitute fear for disgust. Anyhow, doesn't overly matter in this moment. The point in this moment is that... <clears throat> When we're happy, we go, oh, we're happy. And instead of letting the happy rise up, travel through and pass, <clears throat> excuse me, we hold on to it and go, God, can't you stay here? Please stay here happy. Don't leave me happy. I need you with me all the time. Well, that's not happy's job. 
Happy's job is not to be with us all the time. Happy's job is to go and say, hey, look, you're in this circumstance and, it, and you're having this reaction and this is the feeling you have. Hey, check it out. Have a feeling. Okay. The moment's passed. Cheerio. See you around. Bye now. So we try and make it stay. And then we take a different emotion. I'm going to go with sadness, obviously, since I started this with grieving. And ideally, it would be the same thing is a circumstance would happen. Sadness would show up and go, Oi, I'm sad. And you would have that moment. You go, Hey, yeah, I'm sad. And you feel it. And it travels through you and you have a physiological reaction and the physiological reaction peaks. And then it, you know, you know, the thing about a peak is the cool thing about a peak is that it goes up one side and down the other. If it didn't go down the other side, it's not a peak, it's a plateau. (laughs) And that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about peaks. And this is very much a nervous system. Um, physiological experience that when we go through a physiological experience or emotional experience, we go up the mountain of the experience or the emotion. We hit the top of it. It's most intensity. It's biggest intensity. And after we have hit the peak of the greatest intensity, we come down the other side. We come down. It peaks and it comes down. That's what's supposed to happen. So here it is. We are of sadness. We allow it to be inside of us. We go, hey, wow, you're here. Rough times. Have a cup of tea? Cool. All right. Oh, you finished your tea? Oh, is it time to go? Okay. It's time to go. Oh, you know, when you need to come back, come back and we'll have another cup of tea. And it goes off. So in other words, we allow it to come in, we accept it, we have a peak of it, and then we have our denouement. Always think of the writing part. You know, we come down the other side. And the sadness passes. And we move into, you know, perhaps a time of quiet, like the inside air of my apartment, which isn't moving too much. You get, you know, a little bit of kind of sort of happy, so it's more like contentment or a little bit of anger. So maybe, uh, you know, a little bit of frustration or disgruntledness with something or a little bit of, of sadness, but, you know, little, little waves, you know, there's always a little bit of emotion kind of traveling through. A lot of times we're just calm, but those big emotions, <sighs> what we do, we, we don't invite the sadness in. We, we get sadness bashes through the door in desperation, which we barricaded against it. So we've built this huge fortress. We've barricaded all the doors. So sadness grows into this massive monster from folktale and crushes down the door or rips through the walls of our fortress until it finds us huddling in the corner, you know, throwing spells at it to make it go away. And it shoves itself in our face and it roars at us and goes... I am sad. And you're overwhelmed by it and flooded by it. And it possesses you as a separate entity because you've made it separate because you wouldn't let it in. You forced it to be separate. So it's like, fine, I'm separate. Now that I've made it all the way to you, I'm going to possess you. And you're just going to absolutely lose your shit and ball your eyes out and be completely consumed by this emotion. And you're never going to reach that peak. You're never going to have that satisfaction of finding the top and allowing it to cascade down the other side. Instead, you just have this super intense experience and then the body short circuits and goes, I I can't even, I just can't. This is too much. This is too intense. This is too crazy. This is something I can't even feel anymore. And I've hit that a couple times in my life, or probably more than a couple, where the intensity of the emotion that I'm experiencing is so much that I go numb. I can 
witness my body sobbing. I can witness the shaking and the crying or the hands curled into fists or however it's expressing physically. I can witness my body having the physiological reaction, but I cannot feel the emotion anymore because it was so strong. I literally short-circuited out the ability to feel it. That is not healthy. Not healthy. Most cathartic experiences, I mean, they feel kind of great in the moment because finally you got to touch into that emotion and you have this big release and it's like, oh, please God, let it be the once. Let it be that one big experience, huge experience. Let it happen and go away. Two things wrong with that. One is that that big experience, that, that big overload isn't processed. You didn't process any of that emotion. It overwhelmed you. So yeah, you may have felt kind of great in a sense because you actually felt it and you think you're going somewhere, but you're not. You got the emotion to come to the forefront. If you can't get it forefront at all, then, you know, there's kind of a win there. But the problem is, is that it's not getting actually moved through your system. It's overloading your system and then running away again. So it's just going to, you know, hover like that monster outside of your castle and wait for another opportunity to come crashing in once it's rebuilt its strength again. Not what we're after. Uh, and then the other problem, if I can retrain my brain, kind of focus again, where, where was that other problem going? Um, when we have our big cathartic experience, one is that it, well, well, actually a part of the first problem is that it can actually re-traumatize us. So if it's a really big emotion around a big trauma, that cathartic release can re-traumatize us back to the original uh, experience. So instead of helping us process the original experience and the lingering you know, uh, emotions and experience uh, sensations that we haven't gotten through our system because it was too much at the time, instead of dealing with it in manageable parts, we have taken it in its entirety and overloaded our system and now we're re-traumatized and it's, um, can be very addictive to be honest, that much intensity, intensity can be very addictive, uh, but it's not healthy. It's not actually changing anything. You're not transforming or releasing or otherwise dealing with that emotional experience. You're just reliving it. So it's kind of like being trapped, I don't know, in a very unpleasant version of Groundhog Day where you're just going through it again and again and never actually healing it and helping it to go. Now, what was that second thought about why we don't want to? Oh, I know, I know I should make written notes, but I'm never entirely sure where these conversations are going to take me. So written notes would keep me on track, but wouldn't cover quite the same ground. So hopefully eventually that'll come back to me about the second reason about why uh, we don't want to go down the cathartic road or why it's not the preferred method. In the meantime, um, here we are in a place where we have these emotions and ideally you know, we're not re-traumatizing ourselves. We're not getting stuck in a loop where we just keep going round and round, but we're actually starting to move through and process. And so I get to this place and I have this grief and I don't know how to process it, even though I've had, you know, the, these trainings and especially, especially the neuroplasticity training was a literal map on how to process emotion and to do so effectively. And am I using it? No, because my avoidance levels are stellar. I've got gifts, baby. My avoidance gifts, they run deep, they run far, they run wide. And our society just doesn't teach us those skills. So I grieve, but I don't know how. And I fall into that cathartic trap. I fall into this place of it, it becomes overwhelming and it comes through and it crashes me down. And then it passes. And for a little while after the storm has passed, I sit there and go, hey, 
Yeah, post-storm is actually pretty goddamn nice, right? The air is clear. The, um, there's a, a freshness to the air after a storm. And everything's kind of been cleared away, or at least it feels like that. You know, right now, falling into winter as we are, we've been having, a, well, we've been having rain. It's the lower mainland. Rain, it's what we do. The rain and the winds have been taking the leaves off the trees, you know, not scouring them down in a hurricane, but still going, hey, if you're at all ready to come off, Mr. Leaf, off that tree, you're coming down now. So there's been this strong clearing sense. That's the power of the wind effectively traveling through, not destructively destroying trees, that's too big of a storm, but a healthy storm, it's just enough to go, hey, I know you haven't been able to clear that debris that's been on there or those leaves that have been kind of, they've been dying on the tree, but they're not quite ready to let go. Hey, if we give them a, a, a good wind, will they come off? Which I guess is a bit rambly, but the point still is being that there's no training on how to grieve um, so how do we, how do you, is that what you're waiting for is for me to go, how do you grieve? Okay. Think of your emotions as airs, as winds, not as waters. They are not waters. Think of them as winds. Think of them as something that comes and goes. So if you really want to learn how to deal with grief or how to deal with rage, how to deal with these big emotions that, we stopped traveling through for so long that they have concretized into water or even into a solid, into an earth form. Our emotions should not be solid. They should be flowing. They should be, well, not flowing and blowing. They should be light. Even anger should be light. So to get there, first off, if, if uh, you're in the lucky place where you're not deep in the dark pit of despair. Heck, even if you are in the dark, deep pit of despair, we want to touch in lightly to our emotions. We want to check in on a regular basis throughout the day and go, hey, how am I feeling right now? What do I feel? And if you can catch yourself in a moment when you're having feeling, go, hey, what am I feeling? So here's the really tricky part. Here is the, hey, you're a magical practitioner. This is shit you got to know. You No, seriously, you need to know this. If you want to be a really excellent magical practitioner, you need to be able to do this thing that I'm going to tell you right the fuck now. You need to be able to hold two realities inside of you as real at the same time. I really wanted to say at the same fucking time as if that would give it more weight. You need to be able to hold the meta view and the ground level view at the same time. You need to be able to have the experience, live the experience authentically, like be in it. If you're angry, you need to be able to feel your anger as it is like go, oh yes, I'm here in my anger. I'm not running away. I'm not shoving it down with food or with exercise or with work, or with any other obsession that utterly distracts me from the experience that I'm experiencing. No, 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 no. You need to be in it. You need to feel it, to let it have its time and its moment. So that's one part. And at the very same time, if you are building your magical skills and abilities, you are also aware of it as something that is happening. So I call this the meta view because you're taking a meta approach. You're seeing it from the outside. You need to be both inside and outside at the same time. That is magical power necessity right there. So the inside is having the actual experience. The outside is going, hmm, I'm having this experience. It's not judging Okay, you've got to get away from judgment. You've got to get away from story. It is so tempting. This is like the biggest way that we in a modern Western society duck away from our emotions. Because we start out, we're like, okay, I need to feel, I need to feel what I'm feeling. 
which may sound redundant and yet is utterly profound. We need to feel what we are feeling. We are having feelings. We are, unless you are in certain classifications of psychosis, you are having feelings, maybe not all the time and certainly not at extreme levels all the time, but you are having feelings. You have experiences of feelings all the time, but do you feel them? Are you able to feel your feelings? You need to feel your feelings. You need to go, hey, I'm having a feeling and not go, oh shit, I'm having a feeling. I need to go somewhere else right now. But instead of go, oh, I'm having a feeling, I'm going to stay here and be curious and be with it and give it some tea and see how we're doing. And I don't mean that in a literal sense where you're trying to smother it with food. That's not what I mean. I just mean that idea of spending time with, to give it space, which if I was to take a little side trip, I really want to, I don't want to lose my train of thought. I've probably got to have no paper here in the future so I can make notes and make sure I come back. I used to be able to do that, eh? You know, if you listen to the early podcasts, I could go on these massive tangents and still come back to where I started. Well, this is a sign of age and all the shit that I've gone through is making that skill less of a skill these days. So we need to have the experience and we need to be able to to kind of uh, be noticing of the experience. So that meta level, like I said, is not judging. It is viewing it. It is going, hey, I am feeling sad. So you're both feeling sad and aware that you are feeling sad. You're aware that feeling sad means that your body feels really heavy. The, your limbs feel heavy or that, you know, there's tears that are welling up in your eyes or they're running down your face or that your breath has gotten very shallow and slow or that there's a desire to keen, you know, like an animal would keen that there's a, and Hey, you know what? If you have that body's desire to do something like keening or crying or howling, do it, do it, please do it. It is a, a gift beyond treasure to allow the expression of how you really are out into the world. And I don't mean, you know, in the midst of a, we still have to live our regular lives. And if you're in a business meeting or in a family circumstance that does not allow for free expression of your emotions, well, yeah, don't. Um, we, we have to be kind of practical in that sense. But as much as possible, there's, there's more room for the expression, the honest, real expression of our emotions than we give it credit for. And the more that we can honestly express in a healthy fashion what we are feeling, we can encourage an environment where more people can feel that way, where, you know, I can be at work and say, hey guys, sorry, I'm feeling really down today, so I'm going to probably be really quiet. Um, If you need something, of course, ask, but just be aware, you know, I'm a little tender, a little sensitive today. I do that at my workplace. And you know what? I get it reflected back when my staff are like, Hey, sorry, I had that moment. I'm just having a really, you know, tough time personally, or I didn't mean it this way. I was really frustrated by this other thing. The more I can own my emotions, the more they are owning theirs and the healthier my work environment is getting for all of us. It's really awesome. So being meta with the emotion means that you're noticing it and you are helping to guide it. So this is where our psyche and I, I'm tending in my language these days to avoid the word mind and mental. It's far too limiting. Our psyche is so much more than just the mind. Our mind is included in, but so much more. So our psyche, um, its power is, is to take note, is to be aware is to record the experience. So our, our emotions are having the experience, but our psyche can record the experience so that we can reflect upon it later. We don't reflect on it now. 
when you're having the experience. So, oh yeah. So this is where we can get sidetracked. <coughs> Excuse me. And that we start to have an emotion and immediately our psyche, especially our mind part of our psyche jumps in and goes, oh, we're having this experience. It's totally related to this other thing back in time when this other thing happened. And here's where I'm having this reaction. This is totally why I'm having a reaction. And huh, bye-bye actual emotion and hello, overthinking. Soon as you are thinking about it and not, and not feeling, soon as you're thinking and not feeling, you are out of it. That's done. That emotion just got kiboshed. You just shoved it back in a box. Even if you still are like, no, no, I'm feeling it. You're not with it. You are not with it. You have left it behind. You have shoved it away from you. You are no longer engaged with it. If you are not directly engaged with the experience of the emotion, you are not processing it. You are just letting it have a tantrum or um, shoving it back outside when you're but you're not processing. Let's just leave it at that. So it's a very, thus the, the dichotomy, holding the dichotomy of staying in the experience and taking note of the experience. And sometimes, sometimes once you got some skill, right, you're able to both take note of it and experience it. So you stay fully in the experience and note it. Once you've got that under your belt, you can start helping direct the experience and go, okay, I'm having the experience. Okay. What does this feel like? Okay. I'm feeling that. Yeah. And and I say these words, but it's really not this cognitive, right? You, You just, it's like the cognitive part of you goes, Hey, Hey, that part of you, that's the, the, the feel, Hey, feeling part, Hey, feeling part. Hey, Hey, can you just kind of take a moment and feel the body part of the feeling right now? okay, great. You know that that's what that feels like. Awesome. Thanks. Go on. Keep going on feeling. You're doing a great job of feeling. And then maybe a little bit later, Hey, Hey, feeling, Hey, 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 can you, can you just pay attention to what our breathing's doing right now? Oh, okay. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. 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 Oh, Oh, Hey, feeling part. Hey, what's that feeling like inside? Hey, does it have any color? Does it have any texture? Does it, does it have any like thoughts or images or memories kind of coming with it? Not, not to go into those thoughts, images, or memories, but just like, hey, is there anything there to note? And really what you're trying to do is take note, just take note and let it pass by. Don't fall into the thinking. Thinking is your enemy. Thinking is the enemy of feeling, which probably sums up why we have such a shitty relationship with our emotions. So obsessed with thinking in our modern society. Fuck you, emotions. I'm just going to think my way through. Well, you know what? Emotions trump thinking almost every day when it comes to actual running of our lives. So grieving, grieving is sadness to the nth degree. It is for big loss. It is a huge emotion. And too many of us have never truly properly grieved in our lives. And we have layered upon layered. We have like, you know, the 18 layered chocolate cake of grief going on. So instead of just grieving for the thing in front of us, we're grieving for this thing and the thing before it and every other thing before in our life, because we've never fully grieved and been able to process. Cause you know what? If you go through grief, you process it. The next grieving, you got this, right? It's a skill skill like any other. And it's one I'm learning. The very, very first step is to be brave and to stay with it, not to wallow in it and not to bury it, but to just be with it, to walk side by side down the beach and go, Hey, okay. I hear you. I feel you. Hold hands and just journey together. Then as you start to do that, you can take that meta view and and help. So that meta view is where the processing comes in. And I'm not going to get into that today. um, And whether or not I ever do in a podcast, I'm not entirely sure, like the actual specifics of, like there's actual things you can do, um, literally to help you process on a very physiological basis. Again, because the emotions are in the heart and they're in the body, they are not in the mind psyche. 
They're, they're not in our will, truly. Um, they are an expression of the now, and they should be the now, and they should be wind. So I've rambled about all these things. And hopefully some amount of this is making sense. Um, I could probably try and sum up, but I think, I think, think, or do I feel? I feel like I'm going to just leave it at that. I hope that some of this has sparked something for you that is useful, uh, that will help serve you in a time when you have need, that it can encourage you towards moments of true bravery, which is to be with your emotions as they are, and to allow them to flit and to float. We flit, we fleet, we fleet, we flee, we fly. To let them journey through. So even when you're holding hands, you don't want to hold hands with that emotion and hold onto it and not let it travel. Because we can get attached to even things like grief. And go, what am I without my grief? It's been so long. What am I without my grief? I don't know. I do know, though, that it's something that's only meant to be here for a time. And it will, grief changes us forever. It is profound loss, expression of profound loss. And we are carved and changed by it. Yet it is not something we are meant to dwell in in its current state forever. Nothing is meant to be as it is right now forever. That's the whole point of living, of being alive, to traveling through the now from our past into our future. The whole point is to change, to change and ideally to become if we're taking an active part in it, which means that our emotions are meant to change which means our grief for in it is meant to change. And you do that on your own time scale. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying people should be getting over shit. It's not what this is about. This is just about going, how, how do we even begin to go through it? So hopefully you have some ideas of how to go through it. And I too continue to touch in. Never, ideally never more than you can handle. Right? You want to touch into the amount that you can handle today in this moment. Enough that, you, that something real happens, but not so much that you don't dare to do it again another day. We want to start small so that we continue. And like moving a wall of stone, if the grief has built up for too long and too deep, we have to move stone by stone. And sometimes we need to just start with really small stones at the top and taking them down one by one, little by little. You don't want to take the big one from the bottom and crush yourself. Neither do you want to grab one so large that you hurt yourself, pull muscles in your back and mean, oh, I can never do this again. It hurt me. Right? We don't want to be there. We got to be smart about this. Work smarter, not harder. So with that, I'm going to end this podcast. I am very tempted to include a song, which I feel like is called I Grieve. Um, I may do that. One moment, please. Yep, it's called I Grieve. It's by Peter Gabriel. It's a pretty long song. So I'm going to send you on the way. Uh, I am going to include it at the end here. Um, I invite you, if you do want to listen to it, because it is pretty long, to just follow the, the shifts, the flows, the rhythms, the patterns to allow it to travel through you and to not be attached to any of it and simply let it move through you as the wind, as the air, and as the emotions would move through you. And with this, I bid you the deepest of blessings in your own heart, your own emotions, in your own journeys. Blessings of the deep and wild to you. Blessed be.
Oh. 